to lie or not to lie? That is the question. I joke. Um, but seriously, what, what do you think about lying? What, what are your feelings about lying? Um, is it always wrong to lie? Or are there times where maybe like a little white lie is, is okay? Um, ask them the question another way. How do you feel personally when you find out that someone has lied to you? Um, what does it make you think about that person? Uh, what, how does it affect your level of, of trust with that person. Well, I found on uh, the source of all things knowledgeable, the internet, um, I found an article by Harvard Business Review that I just wanted to read uh, some of it to you on this topic. The question is, and this is the title of the article, when is it okay to tell a well-meaning lie? And it says this, a manager gives an employee overly positive feedback to boost their confidence. A doctor gives a patient a too rosy prognosis to foster hope. A government official conceals a, a security threat to prevent widespread panic. These are relatively understandable scenarios in which an individual tells a lie because they think they are helping someone. In each case, however, it's unclear whether the lie actually makes recipients better off. Employees could benefit from honest criticism in order to improve. Patients may benefit from a candid prognosis. Citizens may take actions to make themselves less vulnerable to security threats. Given the ethical issues surrounding deception, how can one be sure when telling a well-meaning lie is the right thing to do and when it's not? Some would argue that deceiving others is never ethical, especially in today's corporate climate. As reports of fraud, bribery, and privacy breaches abound, transparency is becoming a watchword in organizations. If an act of deception were uncovered in public, it could result in a severe blow to your reputation. However, day-to-day -day life presents what comedian Jerry Seinfeld calls must-lie situations are at the least situations in which people lie precisely because they believe it is the ethical thing to do. For example, if someone asks how they look on their wedding day, the only acceptable answer is, you look incredible, regardless of whether it's true. Uh, but what if your boss asked you for your opinion on an underdeveloped presentation that they had to deliver at an important meeting that's just weeks away? Well, this is a very different situation. True, it might cause you both discomfort in the moment if you tell your boss that you think the presentation is not in great shape. However, there is enough time before the meeting for you to save your boss from embarrassment if the presentation were to fall flat. To your boss, and perhaps the company, preventing this embarrassment later on could be more important than avoiding the discomfort of receiving criticism. In this case, falsely telling someone that they did a great job could be considered a paternalistic lie. That is, a lie that requires the deceiver to make assumptions about whether lying is in the best interest of the person being deceived. And so then the article goes on and it, it lays out questions and groundwork for how you can determine whether a paternalistic lie is the right thing to do or not to do in the situation uh, to kind of bend the truth or, or whatever. And I get it. I get, I get the point. I get the challenge. Um, one time comes to mind for me, uh, I was early on in ministry. Uh, I was my first kind of 
um, ministry job, and I was uh, an intern in a children's ministry in this church. And uh, a parent had just had a new baby. And so they brought the new baby up to the church uh, for the staff uh, to get to see the baby and celebrate with them and rejoice with them. And so everyone's gathered around this baby, just ooing and eyeing, and oh, the baby is so cute and, uh, and everything. And so I was like, oh, I want to see the cute baby. So I walk over to where everybody's gathered around, and I peek in, and I behold the most hideous child I've ever seen in my life. Like, you know, it was like a thing straight out of a horror movie. You know, like you think in these horror movies, they have these like scary looking babies, and it's like all makeup and this stuff. And no, this kid was like that. Like there were just, it was, it, 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 I skipped a breath as soon as I saw this thing. And so in that situation, what do I do? What do I do? Do I say, join everybody else saying, oh, that baby is so cute. Um, or do I uh, um, say, wow, that is the most hideous thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, I don't think that second option would have been really edifying to the parents of said child. Um, and thankfully, if this is so long ago, nobody can figure out which kid this is. Um, <laughs> but so what do I do in that situation? Well, I think what I ended up doing was saying, hmm. And then I had a lot of work I had to do right at that moment, and I left to go do my work uh, so that the image of that child would not haunt my dreams um, that night. Uh, so I get it. I get it. There's times in which socially it's more acceptable um, to maybe tell a little white lie, tell a little fib, bend the truth a little bit on certain things. But I want to go back again and ask you, how does it make you feel and how does it affect your trust for someone else when you find out that they have lied to you? Even if it was over something trivial. Because I know for me, when, when I've had that experience and I find out that what someone told me just wasn't true, or, um, and they might have had the best intentions in, in bending the truth in that situation, I know that what that leads me to is in the future to not being able to really trust or believe that person. Because if they'll lie to me about that thing, then why won't they lie to me about this other thing? If they'll lie to me about little unimportant things, then why do I think they're being truthful about very important things? And so as we ask that question, it leads us to our point for our passage for today, which isn't so much about our truthfulness, because as humans, we can all admit that we have a problem with truthfulness. It's part of our sin nature that we do bend the truth. We do lie at times. We do misshape things. But what about with God? Does God lie? Does God bend the truth? Is there, is, does he deceive us at times in order to mislead us? And that's the main point of this whole passage we're going to look at today. And so we're going to approach the scripture a little differently. Usually we start at the first verse of the passage, work through it. Um, today we're going to jump right into the middle to this main point, and then we're going to go back and see uh, what it is that the author of Hebrews uses to develop this point. But we're in Hebrews chapter 6, and, uh, and this main point comes in verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. That's the, that's the main point right there. It is impossible for God to lie. 
And then we'll get into the the two things later on. Um, But before this, he sets up his example, um, his illustration of, of how it is that it's impossible for God to lie. Because you see, God is truth. And in him, there is no deception. There is no falsehood. There are no little white lies. He doesn't bend the truth. He doesn't have to go through a question rubric to figure out whether it's right or wrong to lie in the situation. He is truth. And he speaks truth. And in him, there is no deception. And because of that, we can trust him. We can trust him fully. We can trust him without any questioning. And so it is impossible for God to lie by his very nature, by who he is. By definition of being God, it is impossible for him to lie. So what example uh, does the author of Hebrews give of God's truthfulness and his faithfulness? Well, he goes back again to Abraham. So let's go back up to verse 13 now. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater uh, by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And so what we see here, what he's pointing out from Abraham is he's saying, hey, when you and I are making a a very serious um, agreement with one another, when we're having an oath, when we're having a contract with one another, we do that in the presence of something greater, someone greater, right? Uh, Many of our oaths today, uh, the government is that something greater that holds us accountable, where if one of us breaks our side of this contract, this binding contract, then the government will step in and resolve that. Um, But even many governments today, uh, when calling witnesses uh, to testify um, about a legal matter, um, they will have those those witnesses swear by something greater. Um, This is where the whole put your hand on the Bible um, and swear after me. You're saying, hey, before God, before the sovereign ruler of the universe, what I'm about to say is true. He will hold me accountable to this because he is greater. What the author of Hebrews is telling us about God is when God made a promise to Abraham, there's no one greater. There's no one greater by which he can make that promise. There's no one to hold God accountable because God is the greatest one. He is the the top. There's no one greater. And because of that, he is able to swear by himself. And so where did this happen? Uh, it's, It's throughout Genesis. There's several different times where God makes promises to Abraham. But I want to take us to one in, in particular in Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis chapter 15, it says this. And this is before Abraham was called Abraham. This is when he was known as Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And then the next few verses, he goes through uh, some more of this promise, things that we can look back now and see that, yes, God fulfilled that promise. He was truthful. He was faithful to keep that promise. But then let's skip down to verse 17. And when the sun had gone down, it was dark. And behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. And so what's going on here? God has Abram, he makes this promise to him. And then he has Abram take these animals and literally split them in half. And he sets the two halves on opposite sides from each other. Okay? And now, what we don't understand in our culture, in our day and age, was this was their way of making a covenant with each other in this time. They would take an animal and they would split it in half. And then the two people making the agreement together would walk between the two pieces. And as they walked between the two pieces, what they were saying was, if I break this covenant, if I don't keep my end of this deal, if I don't keep, hold up my end of the bargain, then let God, let the one who is greater than I do this to me. Let him split me in half if I don't hold up my end of this bargain. But what's very interesting here with what God does is Abram, he splits the animals in half, but then who passes between them? He doesn't say, okay, come on, Abram, let's walk through it together. No, God sends these, these two flaming things this, that they pass through them, symbolizing God. You see, in this covenant, God is the one who's making the promise. And he's making the promise by himself that he's going to hold true to this promise. And it's not really even that con contingent on Abram at all. I mean, yes, we, we see in here that it was counted to him as righteousness that he believed. But we don't see anywhere that Abram's actions are responsible for upholding this covenant and upholding this promise. And so it's based on that that the author of Hebrews is saying that, hey, God is truthful. He, holds, he keeps his promises. He made a promise to Abram that he was going to multiply him, that he, he was going to have all of these offspring. He didn't even have a kid yet, but he said, hey, your kids are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. 
And by the time that this author is writing this to the Hebrews, the Hebrews are those people. And you think about from the time of Abram until today, how many Jewish people have there been? As numerous as the stars in the sky. You see, God is good for his word. He keeps his promises and he is truthful. He does not lie. He cannot lie. And so that brings us back to verse 18 again, where we started. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Here's the two things. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We can have refuge and encouragement in God's promises to us. I don't know where you are in your life right now. I don't know what's going on specifically with you. But I think we all can use a little refuge and encouragement. Even if the worst thing that's hitting you right now is just the fact that you have to be alone so much. What better thing can you have than for God to say, here is a refuge for you. Come to me. Here's a refuge. I can pull you out of this place that you're in. I can be uh, your, your source of, of community. I can be uh, there with you even in your time of isolation. And we say, well, how, how can he do that? Well, he can do that by the same way that he made a promise to Abraham. That's called the old covenant. He also made a new covenant. And that new covenant is the promises that he made in Jesus Christ. And the promises in Jesus Christ are that that Jesus came as the sinless sacrifice. Jesus came and died on a cross for us, paying the price for us, so that our sin can be removed, so that we can come into communion with God, so that we can come into fellowship with him, so that we can have this relationship with him, this relationship that lasts for eternity. And it's in that that we find our refuge. It's in that that we find our encouragement. It's in that that Christians throughout history, even in being persecuted, even at the point of of facing death for following Christ, have been able to say, I have refuge. I have encouragement because I know Christ. No matter what my earthly situation is, no matter what my surroundings are, whether, whether I abound or whether I decrease, I am content in Christ. Because I have refuge in him, I have strength in him, and in him I can find my hope. Because see, that's the next thing. Jesus is our hope, where we find this refuge and encouragement. Verse 18, so the betweenest little things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What is our hope? Our hope is Jesus. Our hope isn't on us accomplishing things on our own. Our hope isn't on us upholding our end of some bargain with God. Our hope is in Jesus and the fact that he did it for us. In the same way that God made the covenant with Abraham based on himself, Jesus makes the promises to us and he makes the covenant with us based on himself, not based on us, not based on our righteousness, not based on anything relating to us, but based on him. The author goes on to explain more about Jesus here. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of 
the soul. A hope. Jesus is that steadfast anchor of the soul. This, this analogy, this, this metaphor is only used um, in this place in Scripture to refer to Jesus, comparing Jesus to an anchor. Um, and it's, it's a, a beautiful analogy. Uh, when I was thinking about this, I thought back to a time a few years ago uh, where I got to go uh, fishing uh, here with, with one of my friends, uh, with Glenn. Glenn, if you're watching this, hello, hope things are going well up in Fort Mac. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, Glenn was going fishing. Glenn's like an avid fisherman. I am a very novice fisherman. Um, I, uh, you know, people ask me if I like to fish. I say, well, I like to catch. And so if you can guarantee that I'm going to be catching, then I will go. But if, if it's just for the sake of fishing, maybe not so much. Uh, but anyway, I went out with Glenn one day. And uh, Glenn's got this whole setup going for him where he's got one of, one of the belly boats. So he's sitting there down in the water uh, and he's got his fly rod. And if you've never seen anybody that is good at fly fishing, you, you just seem to watch it sometime. And Glenn is very good. So it's, it's like a, it's a work of art, uh, just seeing him cast and everything. It's just so seamless and smooth and just a beautiful thing. And then he catches fish uh, while he's doing it and uh, just very impressive. Well, I don't have that whole rig, um, and obviously I can't share a belly boat with Glenn because that would be really awkward. Um, and so, so I took my canoe out um, with him, and so I was just, you know, handling my canoe by myself. And so I get there, get the boat in the water, throw in my, you know, fishing gear, which is the old rod and reel and, like, bobber things and all that kind of stuff because I don't have the rhythm that Glenn has. Um, but uh, anyway, and so I paddle out there uh, to where Glenn is, and we're catching up. Hey, man, how are you? Da, da, da. And, um, and so I, I cast my, my line in the water. Well, this happened to be a very windy day. And so uh, we were up in Shannon Lake. Those of you from the area that know Shannon Lake. Um, and so we were on the one side. Well, I cast my line into the water, and I'm sitting there fishing, and the next thing I know, my boat is halfway across the lake um, and all the way over by the golf course. Um, I ended up on, on the shore by the golf course, uh, and Glenn was still on the other side. And I'm like, well, this is not being very effective of hanging out with Glenn uh, while we fish if I'm just going to keep getting blown over here. But my problem was I didn't have an anchor in my canoe. And so all I could do was keep paddling. And so I paddled back all the way across the lake um, over to where, where Glenn was and cast again, start floating off again, paddle some more, paddle. And I'm just sitting here doing this. Well, finally, I figured out I do have some rope in here. So I took my rope and I tied it off to a tree on that side. Um, and then I was just getting blown around swinging from the tree. Um, needless to say, I did not have a very effective day of fishing that day. And in, in fact, it, it was quite frustrating just getting blown all over the lake. And the problem was I didn't have an anchor. I didn't have an anchor to hold me steadfast. Since then, I have purchased an anchor for my canoe. And so now if I'm ever out and it is windy, I can just drop the anchor and it's going to hold me in place. It's going to hold me steady. And that's what Jesus is for us. He is that anchor that holds us steadfast. It keeps us from being blown around by whatever comes at us. So whatever comes at us, we're able to stand, stand firm and stay in place and stand in his hope and in his, his security and in his refuge. 
He's the anchor that holds us there. So I ask you today, are, are you, do you have your anchor in place? Are you holding fast to your anchor? Are you, are you holding fast to him? Because Jesus is sure and steadfast. He is that sure and steadfast anchor for us. So he says in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And just like that, the author circles back around and gets back to where he was in chapter five, where we're talking about Jesus as the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so as he's, he's getting there, what we can see is that all of this ties together. That Jesus is the one that's come into the world to save us out of it. But it's not just for our eternity, but it's also for our right now. He is, he is our refuge. He is our hope right now in whatever we find ourselves in. And we can rest assured in that by the fact that he's gone ahead of us. And on our behalf, he's gone into the inner sanctum with God the Father and is working on our behalf right there with God. And it's in, in that that we have our hope. Because you see, he, he's able to be that steadfast anchor because he is our great high priest. As we've covered before, our high priest is the one who's able to understand us. He understands our plight because he came and lived as one of us. He understands the storms that come at us because he was one of us. He is one of us. And yet, because he's also fully God, he is able to go into the presence of the Father and intercede for us. John Calvin said this about this passage. He said, And doubtless it is in vain for men to seek God in his own majesty. For it is too far removed from them. But Christ stretches forth his hand to us that he may lead us to heaven. You see, Christ came down to rescue us. He reaches out for us and he draws us in. He makes that covenant with us. He makes that promise with us. And we get to just be held steadfast in his refuge and in his hope because he is our anchor. And so as we close today, I want to close uh, with looking at what the psalmist said about this. And in Psalm uh, 33, it says this, verse 20. And I ask you, can you say this with the psalmist? Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Let's pray. Jesus, our hope is in you. And you do not disappoint. 
Because in you there is truth. You do not lie. You are the truth. And when you said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me, that was the truth. And we know that that truth holds true today. We know that there's hope in that. We know that there's peace in that. Lord, for those of us who are your followers, remind us of that today. Remind us of your goodness. Restore us to you. Let us cling to you as our our place of refuge. Be our anchor. Hold us steadfast. Because, Lord, in this time, there are different things coming at different ones of us. But, Lord, we want to cling to you. And so, so, God, I pray for anyone today who might be joining us who doesn't know you. I pray that in this moment, in this time, they will see the need that they have for you as their refuge. The need that they have in their life for you as their anchor. And Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit will lead them into salvation, will lead them into repentance, and will bring them to faith. God, we thank you for all that you are and all that you do. You are good. We're so thankful for you. In Christ's name I pray.